Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Focused on Forward. Today, we have the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Alex Hershaft. Dr. Hershaft is an animal rights activist. You may know him from his work with that, but Dr. Hershaft is also a survivor of the Holocaust. He has been uh, doing work with uh, the the program called FARM, uh, which is the Farm Animal Rights Movement since 1976. And so we're excited to talk to him not only about uh, what he's doing with animal rights and why he feels so strongly with it, and and his logic is very sound when he when he presents this, and I think that you guys will will definitely agree. But I'm also interested in talking to him about his experiences uh, in his homeland of Poland uh, once they were invaded by the Nazi party. So, uh, Dr. Hershaft, thank you so much for joining us today. We're, we are privileged to have you. Hi, it's my pleasure, Tim. Enjoy being with you in thank your audience. Thank you so much. What I'd like to do today is, is I have a handful of questions. Typically, we turn the microphone over to our guests and just let them tell their story. But today, we're we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to do a little bit of a question and answer format. So what I was hoping, Dr. Hershaft, is you could you describe to us what life was like in Warsaw before the invasion of the Nazis from what you remember? Sure. So um, I was five years old uh, on September 1st, 1939, when the Nazi armies invaded Poland and set up martial law. Uh, Shortly after the invasion, all the uh, Jews in the greater Warsaw area were uh, ordered to move into the Jewish section of Warsaw, which uh, produced a lot of hardships because most people had to move in with strangers. We were fortunate in that uh, my grandfather owned a large apartment in the worst in the Jewish section so we moved in with him and uh, shortly after that uh, about the year after the invasion uh, the Nazis built a brick wall around that section uh, topped with barbed wire and that became the infamous Warsaw ghetto uh, we did not know that at the time, but it turned out that uh, that became basically a concentration camp, which uh, uh, means a place to hold victims until they could be exterminated, until the gas chambers and crematoria and other death facilities could be constructed to uh, conduct the extermination. So uh, we didn't know that, I mean, <laughs> you know, no, 
no rational human being could imagine that they're being held uh, basically uh, for death. Uh, we assume that there was some, some, some other more benign reason that we were being kept maybe as prisoners of war to be, or maybe as hostages. But yeah, so in, uh, in the summer of 1942, three, uh, just, just short of three years after the invasion, uh, the Nazis uh, began liquidation of the ghetto, basically loading people onto uh, cattle cars and uh, shipping them off to the gas chambers of a little village called Treblinka, uh, about 60 miles northeast of Warsaw, where the gas chambers uh, were built and uh, where the extermination took place. We uh, left the ghetto shortly after that initial liquidation when it became clear that the alternative to living was certain death. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's basically okay. the summary of my experience. Okay. So from what I understand, there was, there was checkpoints in and out of the ghetto. Um, and uh, your, from what I, I read in another interview is that your mother could pass uh, as Gentile. And so she would come in and out of the ghetto a little easier, I believe. Right. So that's kind of an interesting story. It was not really my mother. It was uh, my uh, grandparents had a Russian maid. Oh, okay. Uh, who was not Jewish. Uh, and uh, But she considered herself a member of my grandfather's family. My grandparents only spoke Russian with her and she lived there and this was her home. So when the ghetto was formed, just like uh, all Jews were ordered to move into that uh, Jewish section of Warsaw, by the same token, uh, all Gentiles were ordered out of the Jewish section. And uh, uh, this woman, her name was Juliana, uh, refused to leave and uh, exposed herself uh, again. Uh, any violations back then did not involve any trials. It was summary shooting on, on the spot. Uh, <clears throat> they preferred not to do it because they would have to deal with the body, but, uh, but they had no problem with uh, just executing people on the spot. So, uh, even before the ghetto was formed, Juliana had a strong affinity for the Russian culture. And uh, the place where she could ex exercise that affinity was the white Russian society, which was a cultural uh, Russian-speaking organization. And the white Russians were cultivated by the Nazis because they were refugees from the Red Armies, from, from the people who took over Russia after the revolution. And the Nazis assumed that uh, once they took over Russia, that the white Russians would become their puppets in running the country. So Yuliana went to her 
white Russian society and told them that she had to have a permission to go in and out of the ghetto. And of course they said, no, that, that can't be done. That's, uh, that's not within our power. And she basically told them that if they don't give her a permit, she's going to throw herself into the river and, and, and commit suicide. And she meant it and they believed her and they got her the permit. In fact, they got her two permits, not only to go in and out of the ghetto, but also perhaps more crucially to bring food in. So, so basically what happened, the reason that our existence in the ghetto, the reason we survived the, the ghetto experience primarily was because we were able to uh, collect a lot of old things, clothing and some uh, some art objects and so forth. And she would uh, tie them around her body and take them out of the ghetto and then trade them outside for food. And then she would bring the food into to us. So we, we always had food. We were not starving like the rest of the ghetto population. Now, during the liquidation that I mentioned in the summer of uh, 1942, she got caught up in one of the roundups and uh, she barely extricated herself uh, with her white Russian permits, came very close to being deported to the gas chambers. And at that point, my grandmother decided that it was no longer safe for Juliana to be in the ghetto and, uh, and that she had to leave and make her own life outside. Uh, there was a lot of crying and uh, uh, discussions and finally Juliana agreed, but only on one condition and that was that she would take me with her as her son. And uh, of course, uh, she was basically risking her life. I mean, harboring a Jew was instant death sentence, not yes, trials. Yes. Uh, so my grandparents gave her three batches of jewelry. Uh, one was for the uh, for the guards at the gate, so they wouldn't suddenly because they knew her by then, and uh, they wouldn't suddenly wonder how she acquired a nine-year-old son. Uh, the second was for the hooligans who would gather outside the ghetto get, gate uh, to extort escaping Jews. And the third one was for Juliana so she could make a life for herself uh, on the outside. So that's that's how I got out. Okay. Yeah, because the, the way I had read it, I was wondering if there was a... It almost sounded like there was a... like. Uh, a sneak you out of the, the ghetto type thing, like under, you know, uh, under blankets or something along those lines. Uh, okay, so so the way you snuck out of the ghetto, it required two elements. One was the one you indicate, which was the, that you couldn't be very obvious about it. You had to disguise yourself somehow or hide somehow. But the second was you basically had to bribe the guard. Uh, but so the reason you had to do both is so if the guard got caught, they could say, well, I didn't notice, I didn't see it. 
so that those were the two elements. And that's basically how my mom and my dad got out. They, uh, they hooked themselves up with work brigades uh, who were uh, taken outside the ghetto to perform menial tasks that n normal uh, Polish citizens were unwilling to do, usually garbage or cleanup or that sort of thing. And uh, then they would just kind of drop drop out of the group, but it involved uh, obviously uh, buying off the group leaders, so they would pretend not to notice. Okay. So going back into your your experience of living in in the the ghetto of Warsaw, did you go to school in oh, the, no. in the ghetto? No, 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 there were no schools. There was, uh, I was, you know, what today you would call homeschooled. Okay. Both, of my, both of my parents were intellectuals. So we had lots of books. My dad was actually a, a, an old book collector. My mother was a mathematician. So, yeah, I got a lot of schooling at home. Yeah, yeah, your dad was a, a chemist if I, if I did my research properly. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, very, very highly educated uh, parents. In fact, your your father had opportunity to leave the country early, but he could not get visas for you and your mother, if I remember correctly. That's that's correct. Yeah. And his his uh, lab partner did leave and left his wife behind and moved, went to England to continue the work and eventually received the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Unfortunately, his uh, wife was killed. And ironically, in my dad's case, my mom and I did survive. So if he had gone, uh, all three of us would have survived. Okay. So, so looking back at what you went through, did, did your mind at, at that young age comprehend what was going on? Or were you trying to make sense of it? What was it like with, you know, because... What was it like with the, the the people that were around you? Were they open about what was happening, or or did they try to protect you because you were you were so young? Right. So, uh, well, no, there was no there was no special protection for me, but we all engaged in a form of self protection by basically. By basically saying, you know, let's let's wait one more day, you know, whatever we were going to do, like suicide or or exposure or whatever bad thoughts we had, we would postpone them each day and say, well, maybe tomorrow, maybe maybe the allies will come in because we knew this, we knew vaguely that Germany was losing the war by, by uh, you know, once they invaded Russia, it, <laughs> well, once they broke the, the famous Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact of non-aggression with Russia, mm -hmm. I, think, uh, I think everybody except Hitler <clears throat> knew that they were doomed to defeat between maintaining a Eastern Front and the Western Front and an African Front at the same time. Yeah, they were spread pretty thin. Yeah, so 
so we uh, we knew that that it wouldn't last indefinitely. It wouldn't it wouldn't be a thousand year Reich or a hundred year Reich? Mm-hmm. We knew that it would be just a matter of time. We didn't know how long. So we just kept protecting each other by saying, "Well, let's wait one more day." <laughs> okay. So clearly, you have many memories of, of being in Poland during this time, being in Warsaw in the ghetto, uh, living across the street from the, the prison, uh, being fenced in, all these things that were, were happening to you as a young man. Do passing years help the memories get softer or are they still vivid? Well, what happens with time is some of the details fade out, but the yeah, just uh, just the more poignant moments remain. Okay. So, is there anything that that you can look back at during the the time of, you know, basically your incarceration? Because that's basically what was happening in, in the ghetto. You were incarcerated there. Like basically, it was a concentration camp, uh, even though it wasn't made, maybe not have been named that. Is there anything that when you look back? that you wish you could have seen you do differently, your family do differently based on the scenarios that you had played out, you know, because sometimes they say, you know, there's the saying that, you know, hindsight is 2020. You can look back and you say, well, knowing what I know now, I could have done this differently. Do you ever have that feeling about anything that happened? (laughs) Well, uh, as a child, I obviously had no options except to do what my, parents told me to do. Uh, Obviously, if my dad had accepted the American visa and uh, left before the war, he would be almost still, well, I guess he wouldn't be alive today, but he would would have a nice, long, productive life in America. And uh, my mom and I would have joined would have joined him after the war. So, yeah, if he was al- if he was alive, he would probably have some regrets. But no, uh, you know the you know the obvious regret was being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, sure, being in Poland during the Nazi invasion for a Jew is not a, not a good idea. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, but it was one of those things that clearly nobody knew that that was going to happen. That was uh, just the unfortunate. As far as as the timing of leaving the ghetto, so here was the equation. Uh, Before we knew for sure, so we we knew we were, we knew that that nothing very good was going to come out of, of the ghetto situation. We had no idea that there would be death. We thought maybe they would send us to a labor camp or, or, or something like that. <clears throat> One, so, so the idea of 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 doing what we eventually did, which is to bribe the guards and sneak out. <clears throat> so there was a calculus. If you did that and got caught, again it was instant death. So, so. It only became feasible once we knew that the alternative was certain death. 
So the calculus was simple between certain death in the gas chambers or potential death by getting caught escaping. So that made a lot of sense. Okay. So how old were you when you decided to first start speaking out about your experiences and what you had gone through? <clears throat> okay, so so here's the thing. Uh, people who survived the Holocaust, uh, <clears throat> I, I kind of group us in two categories. <clears throat> one was the victims and one was the doers. Uh, and it's it's not all that different from the society we have today, okay. you know. And there are, there are, there are people who who just you know they, we all have certain resources, certain circumstances, and we make the best with what we have. You know, that's one option. The other option is to feel victimized and to feel sorry for yourself and to feel that the world is against you and owes you a living and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And that's very much what happened after the Holocaust. So, for example, my mother became a victim and she spent the rest of her life uh, basically just uh, wasting her the rest of her life. She was a very enterprising, very attractive, intelligent woman. But uh, once the war was over and once... I emigrated to the United States. She felt she had nothing to live for, and she just uh, became a victim for the rest of her life. I, on the other hand, uh, said, okay, yeah, I did survive, and it was terrible, but I'm only 16 years old, and I have a whole life ahead of me, and I'll just do the best I can with what I have. And, <laughs> you know, I've done okay. 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 So, yeah, you came to the United States when you were 16, um, right around the uh, January of 1951, I believe. Yeah, during the McCarthy era. Yeah, that had to be a fun time. Well, that's why my mother was unable to join me, because uh, they decided that she had consorted with the Soviet spy. Uh, she had a boyfriend in a refugee camp who was alleged to be a Soviet agent of some kind. Oh, okay. So that's why she was unable to come. Once McCarthy, the, the McCarthy era was over by the by the early 50s, 52, 53, I guess these famous hearings uh, with the army is what finally brought him down, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. By 1953, McCarthy was gone and... and and some era of normalcy returned to the collective social psyche of the United States. Uh, but by then, uh, she had already settled in Israel and she, she she would visit here. She was allowed to visit, but she didn't want to move here by then. Okay. So let's let's look at what you started to do once you got to the United States. So you're 16 years of age. What becomes Dr. School. Alex Hershaft's plan at that point? School, 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 school. <laughs> so I went to, yeah, I, I uh, started contacting. Uh, and my mother gave me a bunch of addresses of old friends, and I started contacting them all 
And uh, one of them said, yeah, we have this chicken farm in Connecticut. Why don't you come and stay with us and you can work on a farm? So I started my career in the United States, ironically, working on a chicken farm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when did it come time for you? Uh, because I don't think that you always were an animal rights activist. Oh my gosh, that was much later. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did so that, how come, did that to, come to come to light? How did that come to play for Dr. Hershaft to become an animal rights activist? Right. Right. So my first, like I said, my first uh, preoccupation with schools. So I went to immediately. We went to a local high school in Norwich, Connecticut. And then uh, after graduating high school, it was natural for me to go to college at the University of Connecticut because it's the only tuition I could afford. Sure. And uh, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> I don't want to spook you listeners, but my tuition was $400 a year. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't think that's a credit hour anymore. <laughs> and, and, and I didn't have the $400. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so school. Now, once I graduated from school, it, uh, it was a matter of trying to, uh, I just got tired of being poor all the time. So I went to work for a year and, uh, and made a little money so I could start buying things, clothes and, and rent mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And then I went to graduate school at the Iowa State University and got my PhD in 1961. Uh, then I uh, decided to go and spend some time with my mom in Israel. So I emigrated to Israel in 61 and uh, stayed with her a couple of years. Uh, and it was in Israel that I, I became very self-confident because uh, by, before then, uh, I was always in an underprivileged position, even as a graduate student at Iowa State University. You know, graduate students are <laughs> sort of the workhorses of the department. You know, every, every time some professor needs something done, they use a graduate student. So, uh, so I finally, uh, when I went to Israel, I, I, I kind of acquired a, a special status because uh, I was an American and I was had a PhD and I was born in Poland. At that time, the Polish Jews ran the country, and I actually had a car. So that was it was a big deal. I felt on, on top of the world. I, I had felt very very confident and uh, and I came across a, a little ritual that the group of uh, local uh, Druzes, which is a, a, a they're not Arabs they're a little different they're called Druze but okay. they were having a little ceremony I was hiking and I came across this little ceremony and i said what what are you celebrating and they said well we, a, a child was born to one of our members i said oh that's wonderful and why why is that baby goat tied up there 
And they said, oh, we're going to sacrifice the baby goat. And I thought to myself, this is so perverse. You celebrate the birth of your child by killing another child, another baby. And uh, I just decided right then and there that, uh, that I would never eat animals again. It was, and I, and I felt confident enough to do it. And uh, yeah, so that was my first encounter. And, uh, and I thought nothing more of it. And then, uh, uh, you know, as time went on and I became involved with, uh, you know, with professional positions and, uh, I started thinking more about the Holocaust, and um, and and uh, 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 you know, was no, I was no longer in the mode of survival of of, tr of trying to make a living. You know, I had right. leisure time to th think about what happened and my past and that sort of thing, and and. Uh, and I got a little bit of uh, what's commonly referred to as survival's guilt. And I was asking myself questions like, why did I survive when so many good people did not? And mm -hmm. uh, what could I do to repay the world for having survived? And uh, is there a lesson that we can draw from this terrible tragedy that just happened. I mean, we we all assumed that uh, we all assumed that the lesson that was drawn would be never again, which meant that the world would be so horrified by uh, what happened to us that there would never be another genocide. And of course, <clears throat> shortly. After the war ended, there was a, a, there were a lot of killings connected with the partition of India and formation of Pakistan and Bangladesh. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of Hindus were massacred in Bangladesh, and uh, and then in Rwanda, the uh, almost a million uh, Tutsis were murdered by the Hutus, yes, yes. and then the Paul Pat regime in Cambodia slaughtered another couple million people of Vietnamese origin and and so on. So so the, the never again, of course, just just didn't pan out at all. People kept slaughtering each other uh, again. So was was there anything else that we could learn from it? So uh, uh, right around that time was uh, when I moved to Washington and I went to work for an environmental consulting firm. And they sent me to do a wastewater inventory at a slaughterhouse in the Midwest. And I was walking around with my um, board uh, making notes and I turned the corner and I came across these piles of body parts, you know, hooves and hearts and heads. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a shocking sight. I mean, I knew I it was one thing to know that you're in a slaughterhouse, but, but to actually see these, these 
body parts, uh, I found really shocking. And I found it very reminiscent of the piles of body parts I saw when I visited Auschwitz after the war. You know, the, the piles of hair and glasses and shoes. So I started thinking about the, the analogy between uh, what uh, we were doing to the animals and what the Nazis did to us. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized the similarities. And really, the major difference was the victims, of course, but... Uh, <clears throat> But, uh, but, but it occurred to me that, uh, I mean, I looked at the other genocides and the victims were so different. I mean, it's, I mean, at, uh, if, you, if you look at Rwanda, for example, I mean, most people can't tell a Tutsi from a, from a Hutu. I mean, right, they, right. they look totally alike. And uh, I mean, the Nazis couldn't really tell a Jew from a Gentile in most cases. Uh, so, I mean, in the case of animals, it's a little more obvious, obviously. Sure. But, uh, but, but the victims, you know, just whoever was available to be victimized, really, and the animals being the most vulnerable sentient beings in the world are the most frequently uh, victimized. So I, I realized that, that the issue of oppression and genocide is not about the victim. It's about the oppressive mindset. It's, it's about what it is that uh, allows uh, an enlightened or, or any society to commit unspeakable atrocities. Uh, so that's basically uh, what, what I, the conclusion I came to. And okay. uh, that's what I was working with. And then I, uh, in 19, a couple years later, I attended the World Vegetarian Congress and, uh, and, and realized that there were other people like me in the world. <laughs> And that's uh, that's when I finally decided to devote the rest of my life to fighting oppression, uh, beginning with the oppression of animals for food. Okay. Yeah, I, I saw a quote from you in 2014 that was talking about the, this very topic, and I thought it was kind of interesting because I had never made the correlation before. I'll be frankly honest with you. Uh, you know, but I think you having gone through what you, you and your family went through in, in Poland, um, seeing all those atrocities firsthand, and then, you know, going to the slaughter, it's easier for, I think, for someone who's gone through what you've gone through to make that connection. But as you start in 2014, this quote uh, that's, um, I was on your Wikipedia page, but anyway, uh, talking about how you notice similarities between the way that the Nazis uh, treated and, and rounded people up like animals, and they you move, they moved them in cattle cars, and they uh, you know they tattooed them or or marked them with numbers, and so they could keep track of them, much like you know animals are are uh, branded or or tattooed, and they're moved in these cars, and and a lot to to provide an emotional detachment to the to the animal just as the Nazis provided an emotional dis uh, detachment to 
the Jew, the Jews at that time treating them as as if they were animals. Mm. So for me, that was kind of one of those moments that was, you know, I, it was kind of kind of very uh, a very big revelation to me because I had never had considered that uh, before. Actually, yesterday afternoon, I was sitting down doing research and reading some uh, some interviews of that you had done in the past and watching some some talks that you had done in the past and. And that was one of the things I just kept coming back to, uh, the you know about the ethical treatment of animals in comparison to the unethical treatment of, of humans. And it's a very interesting topic when you when you sit down and 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 look at it. So, what are some of the ways that you're combating the unethical treatment of animals today? Uh, well, the the most promising aspect is uh, the the tremendous growth in the number and the quality of plant-based meats and milk products. And basically what we're hoping is that uh, uh, people will just naturally move over to these plant-based products because they're healthier, because they're eco-friendly, because they're less expensive, more convenient, and hopefully tastier because they can be since since they are manufactured since they're processed they can be made to order to every consumer and uh, and at the same time we're also educating the public on uh, these topics that we were talking about about the fact that uh, it is just morally wrong to kill animals for food okay now if i'm not mistaken you've written is it one or two books on this topic i am in the process of writing two books they're not published. okay not published yet okay i knew that there was two books i couldn't remember if you had written them or if they were still in the process of but okay so that'll give us something to look forward to okay uh, a couple of questions that i i want to make sure that i i get in uh just real quick just kind of going back to your upbringing and, and kind of looking back over the the extent the, of your life, looking kind of you know, as an overview. Um, my buddy Tommy runs a another podcast called the Curiosity Hour podcast, and sometimes when I'm I'm looking for good questions to ask somebody, uh, I'll go to Tommy and say, "Hey, Tommy, uh, here's who I'm going to be talking to." What would you want to ask? And so Tommy uh, Estlin wanted to ask this. He said, how does he go on having seen such horrors visit upon humanity by humanity? We like to separate monsters from humans, but these were people. Yeah. So this is uh, this is really the, the thing that, that has baffled me the most is how... I mean, you take you take you take Germany, for example, is generally considered the most enlightened country in the world. I mean, they they have spawned so many composers and writers, philosophers, artists, and uh, and and you ask how how could such an enlightened society commit such unspeakable atrocities 
and uh, and 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 after asking that question, I then turn around and and I look at our own enlightened society and some of my best friends and relatives who are committing similar unspeakable atrocities against other sentient beings. And the only equation that I can derive between those, those, those two perversions is uh, the power of social norms. Uh, social norms in America uh, sanction the killing of animals for food. Social norms in, in the Nazi Germany sanctioned the killing of Jews. Uh, what disturbs me is how quickly... So, so you kind of think of social norms as being cast in stone, as taking millennia. You know, you think of Christianity, say, that took about 300 years to, to take hold, you know, after, after the death of Christ. Uh, I mean, you look back at history and, and things were, things took, took many years to change. You know, we talk about the Dark Ages and the Renaissance. You know, you're talking about, about the hundreds of years. But then you look at, at, at Hitler's Germany. Uh, Germany, the Weimar Republic, uh, which was the, the government in Germany between uh, the end of World War I, 1919, and when Hitler took over in 1933, was a fairly democratic country. It had, it had very strong legal institutions was very law-abiding country. Uh, I mean, everything was governed by laws, and uh, and you know there were there, there were very few legal transgressions. And yet, between he, between when he took over in January of 1933, and within the next two years of or or so he was able to basically turn German social norms upside down. Right. right. And, and that, 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 that really scares the heck out of me that, mm -hmm. that somebody could do that. And, and of course there, there's, there've been a, a lot of that thinking with some of our <laughs> recent governments we've had here. Mm -hmm. But uh, but that that is a really scary thought that that the society's social norms, which are so powerful, which this decide such things as uh, as gay marriage, as uh, as uh, as Black Lives Matter, as you know that 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 these these fundamental changes with could take place in in just a couple of years that's you know in some sometimes it's you know when it works out for good like with the gay marriage you know we're all happy but conversely you know if if it happens that fast it could also happen that fast in the wrong direction yeah as, absolutely as it did in germany yeah absolutely okay um and and 
you know, we, 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 always, we always tell ourselves, well, it couldn't happen here because we have such powerful institutions. You know, we have the Supreme Court and we have <clears throat> this and that. Well, the institutions are only as strong as the people who staff those institutions. And uh, yeah, and uh, you know, if we if we're willing to tolerate transgressions, uh, whoever wh whatever our role is in society, yeah, that that's when it happens. Okay. So, what do you believe that we can do as a society? You got we were kind of touching on it right there, but what do you believe that we can do as a society to fight indifference? Uh, hatred, racism, even anti-Semitism, which is a form of racism today. What can we do to make sure that that path, that an enlightened society went down very quickly, almost, we could almost say easily, uh, went down back then? How do we prevent that from happening today? Uh, I have some ideas, but that would... <laughs> take another hour <laughs> understood okay yeah. yeah that's a subject for another podcast yeah that's almost a full discussion i would agree with you i would agree with you okay and um one more question about this topic and then then and before we wrap up with everything that you've experienced both during the holocaust and up until today the things that have, have affected your life the things that you see in the world around us are you optimistic for the future? Oh, boy. Uh, generally, yes. Uh, uh, I, I would rephrase the question. Please feel free. I think the way I would rephrase it is if I had to if I was not born and I had a choice of being born at, at different times, I would probably choose to be born uh, in the late 40s, uh, not before, of course, because of the war, and not later because of global warming. So, uh, you know, uh, except for the, <laughs> you know, it's like, ex <clears throat> like, except for the killing, how did you like the show, Mrs. Lincoln? Uh, except for the war, uh, I think I, I live uh, at the right time. Okay. So I have two questions that I ask every guest that's ever been on my show. So uh, we'll go through those real quick. Uh, the first question is, looking back over the entirety of your journey, what's the single greatest lesson that you have learned in life? Uh, the power of social norms and how, and what, what we can do as individuals to make sure that the, now that we know how quickly social norms can change, what can we do as individuals to make sure that the changes occur in the interest of uh, increased uh, well-being for the most people. Okay. 
Excellent. And the second one, pretty similar to the first question. Looking back over the entirety of your journey, what's the single greatest piece of advice that you've been given? Uh, carry on. <laughs> carry on. Okay. Don't give up. <laughs> okay. I like that. Very good. So, so Dr. Hershaft, if people wanted to find out more about you and and your work with animal rights and 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 things along these lines, what's the best way for people to be able to find out about you? Uh, we have a website that covers most of what we've been discussing, which is uh, neveragain.global. Okay, neveragain.global. Okay. But uh, if they are more interested in the work we do for animals, that website is farmusa.org. Okay, farmusa.org. Excellent. I'll make sure that we put both of those down in the show notes so that people can uh, find out more about you, the work you're doing, and uh, how we can all move forward as an enlightened society. So, uh, Dr. Hershaft, thank you so much for your time today. I greatly appreciate you you being willing to come on, share your story, share your, your experiences, and uh, share your, really, your enlightened views on... on where we've been as a society and what the dangers are as we move forward. Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. You're a good host. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. All right, guys, that's going to conclude us today for Focused on Forward. Thanks for listening. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter at podcastfof through our Facebook page named Focused On Forward or through email focusedonforward at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told. So until then, be safe, be kind, and be loving to one another as you stay focused on forward.